Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Welcome, uh, this is your host Gabe Lezra, and this is the Let's Fix Football podcast on Ballon d'Order. I am joined by my host, uh, co-host Evan Matier. Evan, how's it going in Texas? It is, it's, it's cold. It was 28 degrees last night or this morning when I woke up, which is just, I mean, I'm, I'm for context, I'm on the border. Like, I'm not just in Texas. I'm in, like, deep Texas, southern right. Texas. It is cold. <laughs> It is. I mean, everywhere in the states is cold right now. There's supposed to be basically an ice hurricane hitting the east coast. Like it's supposed to hit tonight. I'm kind of hopeful that they're going to close down all of DC, but I don't think it's going to happen. But yeah, dude, it's 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 crazy cold in this country. So, um, but you know, it's not cold. <laughs> oh, that's a terrible segue. Um, you know, it's not cold is uh, the USSF presidential election where there has been some absolute uh, fireworks in the news, actually, that all broke basically today. For uh, a month or so, uh, various people have been kind of intimating that Eric Winaldo was receiving some of his money for his uh, USSF campaign from uh, the NASL, which is currently suing the uh, USSF in an antitrust action. We're actually going to have more on that uh, in a future episode, because uh, and I, I, can't, I don't know if I, I mentioned this to you, my friend, uh, our friend, Mike uh, Altabrando is writing a piece on the antitrust issue uh, for Bolland Order. So we will we will have an, an analysis of the claim by NASL against MLS, though. I, I got to tell you, everyone, my gut is that that's not going to go anywhere. But regardless, um, so it, it came out today that Eric Winalda uh, was being funded by an owner of an NASL franchise. Uh, at first, it was reported kind of on the DL, uh, and uh, there was a big and very funny fight about it between, I think, some normal journalists who are, like, actually pretty well-adjusted uh, and uh, someone who appears to be extremely not well-adjusted. Um, so we're going to get into that. We've got to talk a little bit about... Um, Kat Carter and um, her whole situation with uh, Sunil Gulati and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so we're just going to have to go, um, go from there. We also have some other awesome shit to talk about on um, a lot of fans behaving badly. And then we're going to talk a little bit about FFP financial fair play uh, because that has been in the news. Thanks a little bit to us and uh, a discussion that we've been having with um, some other people in the legal field, which has been pretty interesting. But before any of that, Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the USSF election. So, uh, Evan, I can break it down a little bit farther, but I think more more interestingly than any of like the what exactly is going on, is it? Do you think it's a huge issue for a candidate for USSF presidency to be like? Okay, so is it a huge legal issue, and then is it a huge political issue? So, uh, for a candidate for USSF president to be being bankrolled by an NASL owner. So, I mean, you know, on the legal side, you know, 
it, it depends a lot on, on a lot of details that I'm not real, that I don't really know about, like what are, you know, the corporate structure of USSF and what are the duties that these guys owe to and who, you know, what, what duties they have, who do they have them to, you know, you, when you think about it in the context of like a, uh, you know, like a board of directors and you imagine like a board director is a regular company, if the board was going to appoint a CEO, um, who, who was somehow associated with somebody who was suing the company that would be you know you'd have some questions there about their ability to execute all their duties and the, the and what i mean by that is like one of the duties of the president of ussf is going to be to you know deal with this lawsuit like this lawsuit's not a small deal it's actually even though you know you you mentioned you know it might not substantively go anywhere it's kind of an existential problem yeah. for for mls Right. If MLS loses this type of law. So, you know, for context for the for listeners, like all American sports leagues rely on essentially an antitrust exemption to exist. Um, it, it, if you didn't have that kind of exemption from the courts, then they essentially would be cartels and it's illegal for them to operate. Like They can't they can't get together and set rules and set uh, schedules and all these other things because they would just be competitors. So like it's an existential problem for MLS. And so them logan doesn't like cartels guys he doesn't like he doesn't like very very much in pro uh very much pro uh competition free free market guy yep um (laughs) and and so and so like that's the fundamental question for that winalda has to answer right you know as far as a legal or personal question i think as an electoral question it's very fair to say are you going to be able to deal with this lawsuit fairly given that you're being bankrolled by a guy who is you know presumably associated with yeah. pushing the lawsuit like that's the question um are you going to be able to deal fairly with mls right in, and, uh, and, and represent uh, mls's interests in that lawsuit because <clears throat> that like, like you said that's going to be a crucial deal i m- my understanding is that it's less uh, because it's like an election and, and I don't know, I think it's because, my understanding uh, is that it's less of a legal issue. Like it's something that it wouldn't prevent him from becoming a USSF president. And I think that <clears throat> if it would, he wouldn't have confirmed the rumors today. But yeah. it, my understanding is also that or my belief also is that it's actually quite a big political issue because I think it it raises real questions, at least it should raise real questions in the minds of the voters who are not like the public, who a lot of people actually really like Winalda. And and as we said, we were both pro-Winalda. I don't know if that's changed for you. It hasn't really for me. I I, I like most of what he represents, but I... You know, I th- I think that the the actual MLS voters, the people that decide this election, this is a this is going to be a big deal because you can't really like you, know, you you can't really go into this kind of election with such a clear and declared uh, favoritism or at least you know this kind of financial relationship with one particular entity, especially when that entity is the one challenging the supremacy of this league that actually the American soccer community has spent a long time building and that, you know, I think that what, what NASL wants is not to destroy professional soccer in America, but what they want is to create a pro rail structure. And that makes sense from NASL's point of view. But the, the idea that you can do it through an antitrust suit is, is a little comical just because uh, I mean, (laughs) Any league formation at all is going to be basically antitrust. Like it's going to be a violation of antitrust laws. So you need an exemption from the antitrust laws to basically to create a league at all. I think so. 
Yeah, and, and just as a clear point of clarification, because the thing that kind of bothers me is a legal technicality, and since we're lawyers talking about a legal issue, it's not an exemption so much as the the courts have found that the sports league itself is a new and efficient mechanism. So it's like a good market product that is created by the collaboration of various market competitors, and so it is not an unreasonable restraint of trade. Like that's what they actually. Okay, find. my understand. So um, that's that's fascinating. My understanding was that uh, at least some of the laws were literally, or some of the uh, uh, leagues were literally written in as exemptions from the antitrust act itself. But I, I guess that's not true. That might, I mean, that might be the case for, I think, so, and this is the thing. Is might be the case for NCAA, actually, I think. I think it's the case for NCAA, but I don't know if it's the case for every league. And they, it operates differently for all of them. And the that's the why that's why you're able to sue to challenge the antitrust, quote-unquote, exemption, is because it's not statutory. It's just a um, court interpretation of the... Um, it's just a court interpretation of the antitrust law saying, because not all collaboration is illegal right. um, when when it serves a market efficiency it's, it's allowed and then the courts have found that for sports leagues it does but if they found that there was a gross violation that they were you know acting as a cartel and whatever if they if the nsl was able to convince a court that you know on balance what mls is doing is no longer competitive you know pro-competitive it's no longer creating a new product but it's stunting growth of a new product, then that's that's kind of what they would need to prove. And you know, Mike is going to know this a lot better than I will. I'm just shooting from the hip on this a little bit. And so people should look out on the site for you know a more detailed analysis that I'm sure is going to go into that. Um, but I, you know, to, to kind of get back to the point on Winalda, you know, when I first heard about this, my first impulse was deal breaker. Yeah. Um, that they just shouldn't like. There's just enough other people to to support that. That you know, there's no reason to touch one out of this. I've I I feel myself pulling back from that a little bit. Um, I think he needs to answer some questions about it. You know, the reason I'm pulling back from Deal Breaker is because you know NASL um, is a member of the you know USSF, the same as MLS is. It's it's not. There's nothing wrong, I guess, intrinsically with a member organization supporting a candidate and having their guy that they're putting up like they're allowed to advocate for their interests within the organization so like that's okay with me he just needs to be asked because he's not just going to represent them he needs to be asked and needs to give good answers to questions of how he's going to curate his position and his administration to serve the interests of USSF as a whole and US soccer as a whole and maybe that has to do with you know maybe that coincide sometimes with you know his backers interest but it's not always going to we need to be feel very confident that when the flagship league when mls is which is the flagship league when their interests are at stake he's not going to you know just go with his backers that that's what he needs to convince me of now that this has been kind of revealed yeah and and so let's 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 add the second wrinkle um to this before we do the I think inevitable bad take because there there are some bad takes going out flying around out there including hilariously bad legal interpretations which I'm very excited to talk about um, but yeah before before that let's add the second wrinkle which is that for a month or so now it's like a month month plus the first article started coming out in early December uh, there have been rumors that. Uh, U.S. Soccer Federation President Sunil Gulati, who you know we all know, and uh, MLS Commissioner Don Garber, uh, who is also interestingly a board member uh, of the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation Board of Directors and the CEO of <clears throat> Soccer United Marketing, which you may know well, 
are campaigning actively for Kathy Carter's run for USSF president and courting. And, and so, okay, so let's, let's just step back for a second. We, in our section on this, we talked about Kathy Carter as probably not a huge break from the previous regime, but not as exactly the establishment candidate. If, you know, and like, it's like the, the kind of, and when I say establishment candidate, I don't mean it in like a political sense exactly. I just mean in a kind of the candidate of the previous regime. That was never really how we viewed her until this stuff had started coming out because there was someone else who was like literally would have been the USSF president after Gulati had he not. Uh, Carlos had, Cordero. Yeah. Cordero, yeah right? So Car- Carlos Cordero, he, you know, when we talked about this, we said that he, you know, the reason we were 100% non-jazzed about him was that he was 100% continuity. He was just, you know, another Galati. He represented kind of a big, big middle finger to anyone who wanted any change. And we thought that Kathy Carter was a little bit better because even though she was associated with Galati in the previous administration, she wasn't the she was a she was a different direction in the sense that she wasn't the guy that everyone knew was supposed to be Galati's right. successor. And this revelation, to the extent it matters, it, it just calls into question that assessment we had that like she isn't one hundred percent continuity. But as we said at the time, uh, all of these people's are these people are different by definition from Gulati. And you know, that's exactly what this federation needs is someone who's not him being in charge of it. Now, I, I I don't think he realizes how bad it is publicly for him to endorse anyone. Uh, and obviously he still I mean, look, Evan, we we knew he was probably going to win anyways if he ran again, despite the vast public disapproval uh, of his regime. But I mean, I don't think it I mean, like it helps her in the politics of this race but i don't think it'll it may hamstring her regime a little bit should she win after this type of story gets out just because of the vast 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 public disapproval of gulati himself and so i'm not super excited to see this stuff come out to be honest no i i I like a million percent agree so like i don't think that this actually impacts the election hardly at all because the people who are already going to vote and the people who already were very informed about this already knew this. Like they already knew that Gulati was behind Carter. In fact, they probably knew it way, way, way better than we did. Yeah. So this this doesn't change any of the voters' minds. And just to remind people, like fans aren't voting. I'm not voting. The people voting are, you know, high ups in the soccer hierarchy. They're, you know, well-connected, well-informed, very rich, mostly white men. Right. And presidents um, of all the different federations. Yeah, presidents like of the, the state, state federations. And, right. And, right. Like that's who's voting. They already knew what was going on. They've, you know, they've been told probably essentially that Carter is, is Galati's gal and, and – um, so I don't think it's going to change the outcome at all. What it will change is the perception of her win, right? It's going to change, for lack of a better word, the public approval or the public interpretation um, of her win. And to the extent that I prefer people to be kind of behind U.S. soccer, it's not going to be good because people aren't going to be behind her. Right. You know, you kind of said it best. That she's just, I, you know, I, we were talking when we, when we introduced these cans about kind of the, the Gulati stink. And who had the Galati stink on them and just put some of the Galati stink on her. And it, it's just going to make her less popular and the reception is going to be cooler. And so to the extent that U.S. soccer wants to do things that requires them to have U.S. fans behind them, it's just going to be that much harder. Right. And I, I, I think I mean, what? so what happened in the, in the recent past is that 
basically everyone confirmed everything that we were belie- that, that that had been previously reported uh, to the extent that you know anyone needed it confirmed. I mean, like a lot of us believed these rumors, but I mean, it, at least Winalda. Here's what I'll say: at least Winalda came out and said all of his stuff. Whereas uh, C- Carter has continued to deny this, but uh, Gulati has not, and um, that's not a great look. And then you know, uh, Garber also has denied it. So I I don't know. I mean, I think that. But what Garber said was, you know, I it's bull- Garber, Garber's denied. Right, exactly. Garber's it's, denied. It's complete bullshit. But so he was that. obviously there for this. Like, it's dumb. Um, but, like, so we have now two candidates who have a little bit more stink on them than when we began this process. I don't think, to be honest, because of this, it doesn't make me like or dislike any of the candidates more because those are the two people that I would have, like, I thought that, you know, I would have been kind of guessing would we're going to win so it was either carter cordero or 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 winaldo was my kind of guess of who would, who would take this job and now you know cordero already had a lot of stink on him now these other two people have have stink on them and i i don't think that any of this stuff has uh changed my ranking just because like i mean at least winaldo would be a, a real change and so for me i still like him but I think that he has to be able to prove to the voters that he can reconcile the issues that these uh, these things have brought up. But um, let, me, I, let me let me get Kyle Martino. <laughs> let me have him. Let me have him. Yeah. Now Kyle Martino comes out all out of all of this looking a lot better because you know at least he doesn't have the Winalda issues and you know he also would be an agent of change and his policy positions seem to be pretty similar to Winalda though I do think. My 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 view of this kind of twenty thousand feet is that Winalda does seem to understand the issues better, just understand them from a from a kind of details level better than than Martino. But I may be wrong, and maybe it's just that Winalda's better at portraying and under, and explaining his understanding of these issues better in the media. But he said a lot of stuff that I really agree with, especially recently, where he said you know a bunch of stuff about how we haven't really run, run American soccer like a a proper business. Uh, like at least a proper business modeled on federations outside of the United States that we've modeled it on American federations when we should be modeling the success of this business on, on the federations that are the most powerful, which I think is right. But I also think he has to remember that everyone hates those federations also. Yeah. So dude, I mean, let, let's be honest. It's going to be Carter. It's going to be Carter. Carter. Well, I don't think, like we, think we should like she's good. Like it. she's going to win. I mean, yeah, I think all of this stuff has just made it essentially inevitable that she will win. That's I think that uh, the Winalda stuff. You know what I think happened, and and you know, so so what I what I really think happened, and the reason why this came out is I'm I'm what I imagine happened is there was some number of the voters who were willing to make a change, right? And so they were already abandoning Cordero, and Garbin and Julati got together, and they realized their best they they were going to lose with Cordero to maybe Carter or maybe someone else. But if they close ranks around Carter, they get essentially the same thing they wanted. Um, and so they started lobbying for Carter and dumping Cordero. That's what I bet happened. Yeah, I agree. I uh, And especially with um, the Winalda stuff, like any if anyone was on the fence earlier, I think that this stuff uh, would raise enough questions in, in your mind to be to push you over the edge. I, I wasn't really on the fence. Now I'm more in the middle because I actually agree that I don't really think you can settle a lawsuit with some with with an organization that basically bankrolled you i just think that that's a really disgusting nasty conflict of interest and a real one not uh, a... and but maybe there's a way that he can say that he would recuse himself from that portion he could appoint some kind like that's you know hi, 
say, you know, someone more independent who he doesn't appoint is going to handle that. Maybe his general counsel has like full responsibility for that. Like maybe there's something he can do to reduce the conflict there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I wanted to bring up a the the funny fight that has gone on today, um, just kind of generally between a number of different journalists, and um, of course, Elected Laos is involved. <laughs> my man, my boy. But uh, yeah, so basically, so Richard Farley, who's a, a journalist that that people should generally follow. Um, he wrote for and currently writes for four four two, or he did earlier. I mean, he's a he's a, a well known uh, sports journalist, kind of generally. He actually did a bunch of stuff for uh, on the NBA among other things. Um, but he he uh, went on Twitter and, and and noted that, and I think it's a fair note that Garber and Galati campaigning for their preferred candidate is being portrayed as a conflict of interest, while an owner from a league that is suing U.S. Soccer is bankrolling one of the field's candidates. Uh, that I think is a really good point. And like, that's, I think that summation of this issue is why Winalda won't win. Uh, so Alexi Lalas, of course, of course, retweeted it, even though he knew, I'm sure the answer to his question, which candidate? So, uh, Farley responds, Winalda, and then a very oh, hilarious, midfield press. Oh, oh my man, God. very hilarious, uh, shit breaks out, uh, involving a lot of, and it's not just the midfield press, but midfield press hilariously. Uh, uh, which is a, I don't know this organization, but apparently they, uh, a lot of journalists fucking hate them. Uh, and that's why they were so widely responded to. <laughs> I don't really know how this happened, but it was pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, they responded. Yeah. There's a little game we like to play with every story we're about to write called cite your sources or prepare for a libel lawsuit. It's really fun. You should consider trying it. Uh, okay. So <laughs> that's not how this works. So, I mean, you, you can publish stuff without citing your sources and not be guilty of libel, Evan. So that is true. And I was, I was like totally ready to make that point, but here's an alternative reading of midfield press. I'm going to give okay. you a charitable read of midfield All right, press. Let's do it. They're not saying if you don't cite your sources, you're going to be found liable for libel. <laughs> See what I did. They're saying, Lawyer jokes. They're saying if you don't cite your sources, you're going to get sued for libel and will have to defend yourself, which is to say bring your sources. True. Right. That's what they're saying. They're saying you're going to get yourself sued. You're going to have to defend yourself. They're not saying you can be found guilt guilty in a civil sense. Me is libel. So, you know, not no. guilty. Libel. Okay. So <laughs> I have to stop you there because unfortunately that is an absolutely fair and charitable reading of this, that's that is not what happened here because they responded later in the oh, goddamn midfield dress. I saying <laughs> you stated something as a definitive, not a possibility, not a probability, which means that as a journalist, you confirmed it with two independent sources and then published it on social media. If you published without confirmation, knowing that it was untrue, that's libel. No, no, that's not that's Unfor not the law. It's unfortunately that it's not it's not um not even. I mean, look, it's and unfortunately for midfield press, we actually had like litigated this uh, a fairly long time ago. And this is just simply not liable. That's not it. It's just not. But it's God, it's cool. God, I'm really mad because I, I really went on a limb. Trying Dude, to I liked it. Press here. Yeah, I liked it because, you know what? <laughs> we don't go out on a limb very much for our bad take people. 
Uh, and like, this is a terrible take. And that's yeah, a bad fucking take. They should uh, call. I mean, if they ever consulted their like whoever they're because like a, a lawyer for a press, um, you know, some kind of press organization does a lot of this. They they should probably know the elements for libel. It's on. It was on both. It was on the bar exam we took for sure. Um, so like. They they should probably fire their lawyer if he, that's what he told them libel is. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like that's and that's the whole point. And not only that, that it was even what really owned them. And like so, this is whole, this is a huge own. But like what really owned them was the fact that when all that came out like an hour later, and was like, yeah, it's all true. And if it's true, <laughs> it's, it's not live. Well, by definition, uh, so. tr- truth. The truth is an absolute defense. So, <laughs> but it just. It's brutal because like they they went on this whole fight and like this is a this it looks terrible for them because it was a very high profile fight they got into with two pretty well known journalists and adding Alexi Lawless um, and other people kinda, kind of popped in and piled on it was just terrible. It's kind of crazy how much of this soccer like the entire uh, USF campaign has just been fights among journalists. Yeah. No, it like what the is. fuck is going on? Like it's just it's like Grant Wall fighting with Alexi Lalas, fighting with Richard Farley. It's just everybody fighting in the journalistic world, um, and it's just really bizarre to me. It is really bizarre. Normally, journalists seem to like back each other. At, at least in any other arena that I know, journalists tend to really be on each other's side almost exclusively. It's very rare that you have journalists, you know. fighting each other rather than circling the wagons against someone who said something bad about journalists. So like, for example, like, uh, I mean, we had Alexi Lalas basically, I mean, I guess he is a journalist then technically, right? Like it's insane that he is. I think that's what's breaking up the kind of journalistic cadre so much as to the extent Alexi Lalas is a journalist. So was Eric Winalda. Right. And he's, and he's a candidate (laughs) and so is Martino and he's a candidate um, and so you have these guys, you know, there's all these relationships we don't know about in the like soccer media world. Let's not even right. just the journalist world, the soccer media world. Like definitely they're all in the media. That, world. I think that's a st- extremely good point. And that's why I wanted to bring up another absolutely hilarious thing that's going on, which is the USSF conference is going down and they've released their, uh, schedule of events. <laughs> and one of the events, all right, let's, uh, let's like, Let's dive into this. This is the the quote, the greatest, and this is one of their events, the greatest con- immediate consequence from our failure to qualify for the World Cup has certainly been the election for U.S. soccer president. We have invited Sunil Gulati for a 60-minute spotlight session. He has accepted and will be interviewed by Alexi Lalas. Boo. <laughs> uh, Absolutely hard pass. Um, apparently, the next sentence hasn't even been confirmed. It's not on the official program, but all of the candidates will be participating in a forum from 1 to 3 p.m., which would be great. I mean, actually, that's cool. I want to see that shit. I like, watch the shit out te- of that. Televise that. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely watch that. It, God, I really hate how this election's happening. I like the whole process. and it, It's the problem. Here's the problem is no one's ever cared about this election before. Right. Um, yep, and yep, suddenly yep. you've got this what's essentially supposed to be just a boardroom discussion about who should be, uh, you know, who should essentially be the chairman, I guess, um, is now like happening in public and people care. And it's just it, 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 there's like a disconnect here yeah. between the amount of caring publicly and the way the process works. And it's just awful. Yeah. And it's well, I mean, like, to be fair to them and I, I don't like to be fair to the federations, but to be fair to the federation. Do you imagine what the out the shit would be if people actually cared about like a corporate board dis, like election of CEO or whatever like 
the amount of shit that goes into that like no well you can see a little bit of it whenever you have a a uh, activist shareholder who That's actually contests say who contests a corporate election right and you see the type of shit show you get when the, there is actual pressure on those things and they're not just you know big proxy you know you, they don't just get a million proxies and have it be a you know right. decided thing before everyone gets there so like you can see it a little bit in the corporate sense and i get that i get that this is not like what i i guess what i mean i don't i'm not blaming the federation for this being a bad process i'm saying that this process doesn't mix with this public attention well at all and it's creating a situation that i just really don't like yeah and it just i mean like and that's the problem that is exactly the problem and i actually think that that's a great place to leave this given that I think there's very little else to say considering that, you know, everyone, every member, all the members of the public that I see commenting and involving themselves in this see this process as extremely corrupt. And the problem is that I don't, I mean, it's not corrupt. corrupt. It's, not corrupt. it's just, it is, is what it is. Right. Like it's, and, it's a board election. It's a, it's a corporate, this is a corporate governance issue. It's just, so, so it's not corrupt. It's just not democratic, but it was never supposed to right. be. This isn't us like going to the polls and electing someone who has to abide by campaign finance and all these other laws. Like this is just simply not what's going on. And so I, that's why that's why I think it's a great place to um a great summing up point. This is a terrible you know it's it's terrible that this is so public. But on some level I think that the way that soccer federations previously had been run deserved a little bit more scrutiny given how unbelievably corrupt they've been uh well, in the past. And this this isn't yeah, even close point. to a corrupt like close to the level of corruption or even like malfeasance that we saw in some of the other shit. But like still, like I'm okay with public spotlight on this, even if what it's led to is a really stupid election. Yeah, this is way fucking more transparent than what you get in 90% of other federations, which is, you know, handpicked presidents and a lot. I mean, and we just know from the FIFA trials and everything else, all the money washing around and and you can look at what's going on in Spain and all the money washing around there. So like this is actually super fucking democratic um, in the fact that these right. people are answering questions. At right? all. The f- right. The fact, the fact that we'll not have had an answer a question or that Garber is answering a question about who they're supporting at all. Uh, even a little bit instead of just going into a room and deciding this is a huge step up. <laughs> it's just we can do better. Yeah, we can. Uh, so let's um, let's move on to our second topic today. Uh, more funny, less less intense. Uh, we have a number of, ev- uh, of of instances of very very poorly behaved and um, truly upsetting fan behavior over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, and and um, a one of our favorite people is back. Um, so let's, uh, let's jump in first. I just wanted to shout out Jack, uh, Grimsey, uh, mentioned to us that, uh, yeah, there's some na- nasty shit going on with Real Madrid fans. I, um, have talked about this a little bit on the Managing Madrid show, but I wanted to get into it a little bit here too, because, oh man, is it, have Real Madrid fans really, really stepped up their game and their, their, their call, their, their shout to be one of the worst fan groups in the world. And I don't know if you've ever seen quite something quite like this, but man, is it bad. So recently, Karim Benzema was injured, uh, Real Madrid, managing Madrid. Uh, we obviously, everyone ma- ma- like talked about it on, uh, on the different social media. And the response to, um, to this has been just, just appalling from Real Madrid fans who have basically uh, as a as a block, gone in and just said just horrible shit about Karim Benzema and about how like they hope he blew out his knee, they hope he you know never gets better, he never plays another game, all this stuff, and uh, yeah, that's um 
That's pretty bad, Evan. It, I, it's horrendous. It's you know we've talked about just a little bit on the show before. Like, don't root for injuries, but it, it's don't dehumanize the people who are on the pitch playing the sport. Right? They're human beings. They're they're people who feel pain. Who you have careers. Like, it, it's just ridiculous to for a fucking sport because you don't like the striker because you think that he doesn't finish his chances enough to be like, well, I hope you're really fucking hurt. Right. And like, I hope whatever ability you have to make money is now gone. Like that's because this is this man's livelihood. And like, yeah, yeah, he's getting paid lots of money, more money than we'll ever make. But that doesn't matter that it's like you don't want him to not be able to have his livelihood anymore because of some injury. Like you don't like the way he's playing. Fine. You can you can say that. And like, you know what? I'm also not even like too pissed off about people who are like, uh, tell us or like their their news outlets like look I just wish that I think Madrid could do better than him I think that's a totally fair and fun part of fandom I do not think it's a fair or fun part of fandom to call out a player who's injured and say I hope you never recover because of how much I don't like you personally uh, and yeah. you know that's horrible yeah if you want to post like well you know hey Benzema's injured but I don't think it's going to be a big deal because he's not that good anyway fine yeah totally like you can say that that's 100 percent fine to say yeah we're you know i like i like his backup i like you know whoever and they're gonna do fine or right. i wish we would have kept Murata. he would have been a lot better than benzema like these are all fine things to say you're allowed to critique the man at, at, at how he plies his trade but you're just not a, you like be a decent person and you know we we know everybody knows that on social media, people find it really easy to just be shitty human beings because it's anonymous and every other reason. Like, would you go up to Benzema and say to his face, like, I hope you fucking blew your knee out? Yeah, online is terrible, folks. But this just try to behave like a like a rational adult and not not a horrible piece. Of it's, shit. it's not even and we've done one or two of these before. It's not even a funny, bad take. No, like there's, the there's next no one is a funny bad here. take. This yeah, is not no a funny joke bad here. Take. There's nothing to make fun of. It's just a bunch of people being fucking awful. Yeah. Uh, let's go from a bunch of people being awful to a hilariously bad take. Um, so, all right, this is from literally from today because uh, Chelsea and Arsenal played. And, uh, yeah, it was 2-2. Big, you know, interesting match. I didn't actually watch, mo- like, almost any of it. I... Uh, you know, I was following it, but the reaction was, and anyone who follows our at Let's Fix Football Twitter account knows that we were going to talk about this today. Um, but yeah, so apparently Morata bottled a couple of chances. Uh, I saw Evan that he himself had created 1.77 expected goals for, for Chelsea, which is actually, you know, not that's pretty goddamn good. The problem is that like. Uh, he didn't score any of them. So no, and that's the thing. When you have when you have an individual really high expected goal, but you didn't score a goal, that means your finishing was probably pretty shit. Probably. And I think that's pretty much the case for Murat today. Like yeah. he had a bad day at the office. It's just a bad day at the office. Uh, very bad day at the office. Uh, he didn't even hit any posts. It just was like that that shot from Alexis earlier in the match, which <laughs> hit off both posts. Like that, awesome, <laughs> unbelievably bad luck. Also very funny. None of that from Morata. Just missed. I mean, the man the just first, missed. The first of Alexis is going to be really fucking scary in, Chel- in uh, City Blues. So that's going to suck. But, I know. I really thought uh, Madrid was going to get him, actually. I thought that really was gonna, Well, Madrid might take Hazard, uh, which you and I – I remember talking with you about Madrid getting uh, in Hazard like when we were on a ski trip like two years ago. <laughs> and we were like, nah, never going to happen. And here yeah, we are. But, here we are. Well, uh, Here we are. All right. Anyway, back to what we're talking yeah, about. So... Um, 
look, Murata had a bad fucking day. Um, it happens. Like Harry Kane just scored the most goals in Europe for club and country over the year. And, you know, he has had some shockers of a match where he yeah. just can't hit goal and good strikers. Every good When you take enough chances, you miss chances. And good strikers can put it behind them and hit the goal next time. And I'm perfectly confident that Murata is going to be able to do that. It's really stupid. So, like, this particular take was name me a striker who was as bad as he was in the history of football. So good. <laughs> so the, good. Is, so this good. is from a guy who's displaying him as John Terry with a championship trophy. Um, <laughs> who, like, so... In the history of football, who has ever been worse? I mean, the guy created like three big chances and he just missed them. I think a striker who doesn't create any chances is worse, right? Oh my God. It's it's such a bad and such a classic fan overreaction. Like it, it is really, this is the top end of the, of the funny fan bad day because like essentially anything else that a fan is going to say is going to be not funny or like less funny and more like eek, mean. Uh, this is just incredibly dumb and angry, which is awesome. This man is dumb and stupid online. And you know, who was worse in the history of football? Like, you know, Morata scored quite a number of goals for Chelsea this season, my understanding is that he uh, has scored and assisted some of the highest in the country. I, I don't really understand what Chelsea fans have such a, you know, maybe today they have some reason to complain, but like not all over the course of the season, he's been like wildly successful for Chelsea. So like, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's that they won a championship last season with Diego Costa this year. Diego Costa has gone and they're in third. So what's the obvious thing? Do you blame Murata, which is fucking stupid because that <laughs> is not, that's, that's not why they're in third. They're in third in part because it wasn't a great year in the premier league at the top and last year. Um, and so city and United are just better this year. Well, United, eh, maybe, yeah. maybe not City's just better than everybody. Um, and you know, so there's a lot of reasons why they're in third this year instead of being at the top, but it, it, it has nothing to do with like Diego Costa being that much better than uh, Alvaro Morata. It's, it's fucking stupid. In fact, but, he's not better and you got a much better player. So chill out. Like I was young and he's going to develop. He's, he is your centerpiece for like, it, I think there are a lot of Madrid fans who, who have been upset about Benzema and how he's performed, who really wish Morata was back at Real Madrid. So just enjoy what you have. Yeah, more than 60%, I'd say, actually. But I would also say that, look, let's be clear, man. Like, last season, uh, Danilo was on Real Madrid, and Real Madrid won, you know, the domestic double and repeated as Champions League ch uh, champions. This year, Danilo, not on Real Madrid anymore. Guess where he plays? Manchester City. So, yeah. Yep. I guess that it, means it, that it, it means that Danilo is what brings a championship to Madrid um, because that is how causation works. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, lastly, in terms of our really uh, awesome bad take fans behaving badly uh, series, um, I just want to be our boy. Just wanted to uh, shout out my man. Registability is back on his bullshit. We've got him back. Um, Absolutely uh, amazing tweet. January 3rd. So today, talking about Arsenal-Chelsea, um, he says, Wenger needs to pipe down about the officiating. For one, he doesn't know much about the laws of the game. Secondly, biting the hand that feeds him is never a good idea. So incredible shout out. And what's cool about this, Evan, is that 
So this is a terrible take because, of course, like the idea that Wenger, who is like a professional coach who obviously, you know what, reduced ability, you know, big, big shout out to you for getting your B license. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> that Wenger probably has a higher license grade than that. Uh, also, he's, you know, the manager of a Premier League football team for the better part of uh, 15 and years. So one of the most one of the most successful managers in the history of the Premier League, actually. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, like, I really am pissed. So I, I am awesome, often pissed off at old RG. And today I'm pissed off at him because he's making me defend Arsene Wenger. Right. Uh, and like, I don't even necessarily, I don't have a position on the actual like position that Wenger was taking. I think he was, I think registability is um, referencing Wenger complaining about penalty decisions. Yeah, there was a complicated penalty decision in this match. Yeah. But yeah, and I think that's what the complaints about. And so he thinks that Wenger just doesn't understand the rule. Um, I think it's far more likely that Wenger knows exactly what the rule is and is interpreting it differently than B license registability would. If oh he my was, God, I didn't even see this, this response sequence. Hang on, hang on. Someone responded, kind of owned him. RG on Twitter.com knows more about the laws of the game than Arsene Wenger, who has been a manager for like 30 years. And he goes, I swear to God, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> And then the, ne- the next response, no offense, but you were swimming inside your da, your dad, <laughs> when Wenger took charge. I um, mean, like, all of the, the saddest thing about this is that we've been, like, I, I'm kind of glad that we have this chance because, like, I don't, I, I won't want Arsenal fans to feel like we're picking on them specifically. And I think it'd be a fair critique given the last couple of weeks. But, like, this true. week, you know what? You guys seem to have conducted yourselves better than at least two fan bases, Madrid and then this Chelsea kid. Who, <laughs> uh, whoever the fuck Registability is, you, you, right. you're better than him. I'm almost certain that he's a pep person, actually. I, I've been trying to oh, figure out. Oh, he's a out. huge pep person. He's a huge pep person. Yeah. So, but yeah, this is awesome. It's it's extremely And I also like the fact that he's like, oh, uh, biting the hand that feeds you is never a good idea. As if, like, the so, only reason... The, uh, that Arsenal wins games because the referees give it to him, which is awesome and the opposite of what our, fan, our friends at Arsenal Fan TV would say about this game. Yeah, except for, like, Arsenal did have a couple. Uh, one in particular I can think of, like, fucking last gasp charity penalties save them a couple weeks. Arsenal's been bad, and it's been really fun, by the way. And I would really, and, and now now this is just me not not being able to resist being in <laughs> Arsenal. Um, but, like, I, I just want to go back to, like, three weeks ago when Tottenham was the club in crisis because they had, like, two or three draws in a row. And now yep. Tottenham's, like, on, you know, it was one, like, four on the bounce, and Arsenal keeps drawing everybody under the fucking sun. Um, and uh, I would like to see all of the hot, takey Arsenal club in crisis uh, articles, please. Thank Hell yeah, you. let's go, let's do it. Please, please tweet them at and underscore Matier, um, so I can see all of the all the takes about Arsenal being in crisis. Yeah, it's not gonna happen. There's essentially none of them. Let's. Um, all right, last and so that's um that's basically our bad take segment for this week. I I thought the I gotta tell you I thought the legal stuff from the first first uh, segment was pretty funny. Also, uh, especially because again the standard for libel um with journalism actual malice. Okay, you have to say something that you know is wrong with actual malice, i.e. intent to hurt someone or damage their reputation in some way. They also have to prove damages because it's a tort. But yes, you have to have all of that stuff. 
So none of that was there. It's from um, NY, New York Times v. Sullivan, fam- very famous uh, case in uh, First Amendment law in the United States. So absolutely not it's on, liable. It's on, it is on 50 out of 50 bar exams yeah. in the country. You all know it. Anyone who's ever even considered studying for the bars know, knows that. And in fact, most people who are in journalism know that, folks. This is an incredibly silly thing to think about. Um, all right. Let's jump into... Uh, because I know we did. I just want to mention because I know we didn't actually mention that in our segment. Um, financial fair play. I uh, and Liz uh, and I wrote a couple of articles uh, for Ballon d'Or over the last couple of uh, days. I guess last week or so, kind of diving into giving a real deep dive into the FFP regulations. Uh, I talked a little bit about how PSG could game the system, uh, and Liz talked a little bit about how. Uh, <clears throat> AC Milan are kind of fucked under the situation, right? So the I think the thing I want to do, Evan, is instead of like going into our articles so much, kind of explain to people the way that teams with about, you know, with we're doing five, I, I think we should do five or so different teams and explain how teams with these different kind of I, like ideal revenue model or like I, I, you know, revenue models would deal with the FFP regulations. All right. Yeah. So yeah. I think the first one I want to talk about Real Madrid and Real Madrid is a very good ex- like example of the kind of old guard, very well known, widely loved, huge international fan base, uh, big business sides that are in this competition. And the way I would describe Real Madrid's relationship with the FFP is essentially they are fine. There's, yeah. It doesn't matter. This is designed for them to pass because the break-even calculation includes every revenue from every possible source. So every piece of business Real Madrid does gets counted as revenue in the break-even. So they're fine. There's something. So there's what? Like there's like three or four clubs I think who pull in something like a billion or more in revenue, like right. just in revenue. And it's like Madrid, Barcelona, and United basically. Yeah, and I think Liverpool is very close to that level. Yeah, also. they might be. Although close their too. their owners aren't as so it's a little different because of their owners, but they're also yeah, the, a well-known and, and club. The, and the and, and the ownership structure. But in any case, like for for let's just say Barcelona, Madrid, and United, like this tier of club, they basically they don't ever have to worry about it because they pull in so much money just right. on marketing rights, shirt sponsors, you know, uh, uh, jersey, you know, the jersey sponsorship with Nike and various other. You know, organization like they they just make so much money that they will never be in the red over any three year period. Yeah. Um, and and secondly, they always have so many players worth so much money that if they ever for some reason were anywhere close to being uh, in the red, they would sell a couple prospects and out of the academy and be fine. Right. And so it's it's actually barely even worth discussing, which is why everyone who and I think everyone who who criticizes the FFP regs for. Uh, their treatment of teams that have a lot of debt, but not a lot of issues with like paying down that debt on a yearly basis. So like a lot of these teams run like normal corporations in that they have a lot of debt and having a lot of debt actually isn't at all a bad thing in the corporate world, especially when you have very high income. So you can pay the interest on that debt and then agree to refi it. I mean, like that is a very common and normal way to deal with your corporate structure and the way you deal with your finances. So people that are, I think it's true that they it could, that UEFA could take debt and debt loads kind of generally into account when dealing with this stuff. But I don't think it would really even matter because all these teams are basically run like normal corporations. Like the Glazers run Manchester United, like a normal American corporation, which means that they have good revenues every year. 
uh, they are tend to be in the black and uh, their debt load is manageable on the interest payments. Like that's it. So yeah, I mean, somewhere there are spreadsheets with cash flows and EBITAs and amortization and all the other accounting things that tell you over the long run how much money you are making and how much money your corporation's worth. And the answer, whatever we, you know, we don't have all the data to do this, but the answer is a fucking lot of money. They're fine. Yeah. Enough money <laughs> that they will pass whatever test UEFA wants to throw at them. Yeah. Uh, and all right. So let's um, let's go to the next, I think, more interesting model, which is PSG. And so that was what my article was on. PSG is a very interesting model because PSG as a club itself is actually not anywhere near that level. What we were just discussing of international and general brand recognition. So sure, they've done a lot to expand that in the last couple of years, but they because of that the, the way to do that is to spend tons of money on international superstars which they've done right they have the two most expensive players in the world by far i mean neymar is 100 million more than the la- the, the second most expensive player uh before him so i mean they are a, a side that is theoretically designed to be caught by P- uh, by ffp except that they have a unbelievably wealthy like vast, vast, vastly wealthy owner, which is the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, right? Qatari Sports Ventures. And so Qatari Sports, uh, Qatar Sports Ventures uh, can basically use all of these mechanisms that I described to game FFP to make it look like any losses from a year are on QSV or any of their other subsidiary companies and any incomes are in PSG in order to game this system. Yeah, so like they're they are at the same time an example of what FFP was supposed example of how pitifully weak FFP was at trying to stop that. So FP was supposed to stop basically what happened with let's just take Manchester City for example, take a sort of mid-tiered club, dump a whole lot of money that essentially comes out of a country or a billionaire's pocket into the club, make it a powerhouse just by loading it up with all of this outside cash that can't, you know, can't otherwise be justified um, by the revenue source of the club. And PSG wanted to do that, but they didn't want to get on the wrong side of FFP. And so what do you do? Well, you don't just have someone cut a check. You quote unquote sign an arm's length, arm's length deal of some kind. It, they take various shapes and shapes with PSG. You cover most of them, but in general it has to do with media rights, I think. Yeah, that's um, what I said. Um, and, 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 you know, because it's quote unquote arm's length, it's not just a check from your owner. It's, you know, considered some kind of revenue, right. even though you don't take into consideration the fact that that media rights group be, you know, is itself losing money hand over fist and just being subsidized by the same source of money that right. owns you in the first place. It's an incredible. It's it's just a shell game. It's so many. It's, right. it's just a shell game. And we so we uh, have. A, I mean, like obviously, I wrote about this, but I think one of the in, another interesting part of this, Evan, that I didn't get into too much in my article, and is that first of all, it is actually very common corporate uh, finances. It's like this is all stuff that it's you don't need to know that much about corporation, like corporate law, to understand. It's also and and not just that. It's actually quite an interesting and normal corporate finance trick to 
locate, especially to locate incomes in what we call high tax jurisdictions and to locate, or sorry, locate incomes in low tax jurisdictions and to locate losses in high tax jurisdictions, right? So you want your losses, any losses that you have to be able to offset any incomes that you have located in high tax jurisdictions. So the interesting thing about all of this is that, uh, QSV on years where PSG is actually quite above financial fair play, which will be the case in the next couple of years, right? Because they're not going to go out and spend that much money on players again. We'll be able to, through similar financial management, to locate pro- like profits from QSV in PSG. Yeah, but so, I mean, here's the thing. You're right that it's a common corporate thing to use various corporate structures to move money to 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 move gains and losses to different parts of a corporation to different jurisdictions and so it's not per se problematic it's not per se a bad thing it becomes a bad thing when you're using it to skirt a uh, some other system essentially right, when you're using it when you're using it to hide something so for example if you were buying or selling a company right and you use these types of structures to make it look like the company you were selling was very profitable when in fact it was losing money hand over fist, <laughs> right? That would be fraud. Right. Um, and in a kind of, in, in a similar kind of way, they're not selling PSG, but they are representing PSG as an entity that is making money when PSG, if you took it in a vacuum is not making, or right. if you take it in total is not making money. That, and that I think is, that's actually a really good point. And it's not something, I don't even think I used that phrasing, but I, I should probably go back and, and edit it just to say like the point ultimately, right. Is that right. That these regs exist in order to, you know, create a structure that, makes the individual clubs uh, financially solvent. Like the whole point was basically in, in 2010, you know, the, the, you, uh, the, the UEFA upper level people went to the United States and said, how did your clubs survive the recession with mm-hmm. such powerful finances? Because the recession was catastrophic for a lot of European clubs. And they came back with this idea that they want to make the revenue streams year over year basically to make everything break even and like that that was what they took away from it instead of what they i think arguably should have taken away for it which is we have fucking profit sharing profit sharing is why the american clubs were so good because yeah some of the clubs lost money in real estate but they made it up because they didn't need to make it all up themselves right yeah they got an emma they got a check from mls every single year right so i mean whatever but this that was the idea basically they want the financial structure of these clubs to be very like you know to be normal and not so (laughs) they don't want clubs doing what a lot of like lower level clubs did have to do which was not pay their players for six months which is terrible and not pay their taxes and not pay, you know, their their fees or whatever. And like that or, is like the basic. Or just go, or just go straight into receivership, right. which happened with a lot of clubs. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Or And on top of that, they wanted to prevent clubs from being what happened to Malaga and what is, now let's talk about this, what happened to Milan uh, or what likely is about to happen to Milan where they're sold to someone who's very rich who essentially misrepresents either their interest in the club when it came to Malaga because the person just didn't feel like it or their actual wealth. And that's essentially what Liz's article was about, which is that the person, uh, this this billionaire or this supposed billionaire in China uh, bought Milan with the support of an American uh, uh, venture fund, Elliott Management, who we've talked about before, uh, 
And yeah, and we've actually talked about this whole case before, but on top of any of the stuff we mentioned, Evan, was that the person who was the uh, in-name buyer of Milan said that he had a bunch more money than he did. He didn't actually have any mining interests in China, which is the collateral he pledged for the club. Due diligence. Due diligence. Due diligence. It is just... <laughs> The kind of thing that like it is actual malpractice. So like I think yeah. like like Liz was like te- uh, texting me. She was like, "Well, I don't know how these lawyers think that they should they are going to be able to get away with this. this." Is malpractice? It's and it's such obvious malpractice that when I was reading it and like I, like you obviously thought had the exact same opinions. Like this is like fucking definitional malpractice. You cannot yeah, miss this so kind of Just thing. for context, due diligence means that you have a responsibility as a biz- as a business. And usually it's done through the lawyers, but the business has the responsibility when you're going to do these types of um of deals to go and do your due diligence, which is to say investigate to a reasonable degree all of the material factors. Um that have to do with the deal. One of those would be, do you actually have the money that you say that you fucking have? <laughs> I mean, that, and that's actually the end of the story, right? But I, we're using Milan as the third in our five, the five types of clubs to describe what, hap- what financial fair play actually is going to catch, which is either, like I said, a billionaire who loses interest, which is what happened with Milan or with Malaga, and he literally stopped paying his players or the tax authorities. So... Malaga got totally screwed or a, a, a situation like Milan where, you know, this guy said he had a lot more money than he did. And now the club is really struggling. They're not going to, they, they invested a lot of money on this belief that a, they were going to make the champions league and B that this guy and his interest would be able to uh, funnel the money and not just funnel the money, but like, you know, renegotiate some of their TV deals in China where this guy said he had a lot of influence, but it's not obvious that he does, that he does to the extent that they were promising to UEFA, right? So they took advantage of the new provision that allows them to explain to UEFA how they're going to get to break even in a number of years. And they they are just brutally not going to do any of that. So they will likely come under the FFP hammer as well. Um, so that's, that's our third kind of club. And that's the kind of club other than I think the fifth kind we'll talk about in a second that, uh, that really FFP is going to hammer. And um, yeah. all right, let's do... Let's do Spurs. So our fourth club is Spurs, uh, and we're doing Spurs because they're sort of right. They're not a, a club that's been bought by a billionaire. They're just a sort of normal financed major yeah. to like high end club that has doesn't have any of the complicated financial stuff that Milan or PSG has. So Spurs is a really interesting case in for FFP to talk about, actually. And I think that they're a good example of how, you know, it matters for them. But because they're a well-run club, it's not a problem for them. Right. Um, and so Spurs, they're worth about a billion dollars. Their cash flow any given year is is in the, you know, seven figures of millions of dollars. You know, you know they make you know, hundreds of millions of dollars right. per year revenue. So they make a fair amount of revenue from various streams. Um, they're certainly not a poor club. I think they're one of the top 20 biggest clubs in the world or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, so like they're up there, um, but they're an interesting club because they're actually pretty loaded up on debt with debt on the moment because they're building a new stadium that's going to end up costing more than a billion dollars in the end. And it's more than half financed, which means, you know, they're taking five, six, seven hundred million dollars in debt on, um, and so then that begs the question, how are they dealing with financial fair play? Well, first they have the cash flow every year. And so they're, you know, they're, 
they have a very consistent cash flow and they're growing that and they're paying attention to it. And then second, Spurs have, I think, as a Spurs fan, an incredibly smart, financially smart transfer policy right. um, where they develop players through their academy. They bring them through. They give young players a chance and they're not afraid to sell them off for a good profit if they're, you know, kind of fringe players, they're not quite good enough, but they make a good amount of money off these players. Or if they get an actual like over the top bid, like the the kind of bid yeah, that they got like for with, Bale, with, right? With Gareth Bale. And so they even though they've been active in the transfer market, you know, they played fifty million dollars for Davison Sanchez this past season, right. which is a lot for a defender. Um, I think it was briefly the world record for a defender until Van D- the Van Dyke deal just l- this week. Um, you know, so Spurs will spend some money, but they're actually net even or a little net positive on their transfer spend because they know that they've got all this debt. They don't have necessarily all the revenue. And so they need to keep a little bit of a buffer to keep on the right side of financial fair play. And so they're they're running the club, club very smart. It takes attention. It takes management. Um, but because they keep everything in order, there's no problem, right. even though they're doing this big debt financed stadium build. And that's why uh, I think we, we talked a little bit about this previously, but that's why the all the Arsenal people who are making this argument about how Spurs were at their peak because they, they were bringing on all this debt that I don't really buy it. Just I don't because of exactly what we've just described. They're actually a very well run club. Unlike, you know, Arsenal. I mean, like, no, no offense guys like, or like offense maybe, but like you got like, that is not a well run club financially. They, again, Arsenal, not going to be a problem with financial they, fair play. Arsenal spends more money for fewer points. Right. But they are also not a very well run club. So yeah. <laughs> not too worried yeah. about Spurs, not too worried about Arsenal. The last type of club is actually the most interesting, and we're doing it because our friend James Rushton, who we talked previously about the Milan FFP stuff, uh, asked us to do. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's a, one of the lower level clubs. So Aston Villa. So Villa is a, you know, in the championship, not getting the Premier League revenues. It's a, a club that aspires to be in the Premier League and the top half of the table, I think, is kind of an, a solid place where you could ask um, Villa to, to end up. Uh, maybe like a West Ham where you have a couple of years where you're looking really, really good. Um, but then you kind of work it, work it a little bit and, and stay in the Premier League. Right now, they're not, though, right? So the problem is that the way the financial fair play regs are written – Villa is going to have a really hard time spending the money that it re- that is going to be required to get back to the Premier League and stay on the right side of financial fair play because they need to spend some money. They don't have many assets to sell uh, and they don't have the revenue stream to make up for it. Yeah, so this is really interesting. Okay, so the financial fair play gets most of the headlines when it's teams like PSG and Milan, right? And at that level, at that level of club that we just talked about, the goal is to stop PSG, a PSG from blowing up and becoming a Milan, right? That I think that's the goal at the high level is don't allow a club with a lot of ambitions to, and history to blow up and then end up in receivership of a private equity fund. Right. At the lower level, it's like it's a different story. It's about making sure that these clubs <laughs> don't blow up and not exist anymore. Right. It's a it's about making sure that they don't load up on a bunch of debt and then it goes south or there's a recession and they lose their revenue streams and then suddenly they are bankrupt and you start having, you know, gaps in the championship. Um, It's it. But it but it is far more onerous 
for a club like Villa than it is for a club like PSG to not be able to stretch themselves a little bit over a couple years. And so, so let's say that Villa has the ability to do some debt financing for a year or two, and they think they can go out and they can sign some good loan players to some good wages, put together a solid squad because they think they can make the Premier League. And if they make the Premier League, they get some of that sweet, sweet Premier League TV cash and they would be financially fine. It's a risk. It's a gamble. Um, but one in other business contexts that might make sense, right? Yes. It might be, it might, it might make sense to stretch yourself and see, Hey, can we compete with the big boys? There's a chance to make money here. Um, but financial fair play essentially doesn't let them make that, make that gamble. Um, it, unless they think they can get that, um, unless they think they can get to the premier league and make that money within three years. And if they don't, they're going to get hammered. And so it's even more bigger. Gamble. Right. And they're going to get hammered partially because Evan, they don't have the assets to sell that would get them back to break even. Is that, was that, that, that was my understanding basically of the way this works, that the problem with this is when you bring, like if you're Aston Villa and you go out and spend a lot on certain players to bring you up to that level you don't make that level it's likely that also the assets that you bought are no longer worth as much as you yeah. they were when you brought them in and they're simply people that don't not many people are going to want to buy your players because yeah you're not as good as you thought you were yeah so like psg let's say psg does end up having let's say that they make some rulings at uefa that they're not going to make because they're awful that some of this being money doesn't count that they you know right. whatever they, sure. they make some rulings and say you guys actually are in trouble and you need to make up 100 million euros extremely well, easy it's extremely they can do it with just selling fringe players and they're probably gonna sell some fringe yep. players and if they've got really bad they could sell second tier players like rabio the um um, the, the central midfielder, like he's young, the German he's guy, not, what's his name? Not, um, oh my God. Now yeah, I but like these people this. that don't even start for them, right? Like this is right. not a right. problem who, who, who they could go out and get 50 million euros for tomorrow. Right. Angel right? Di Maria, you could probably get 74. Right. Tomorrow. So they have all these players. They, you know, have hundreds of millions of, of euros in assets that they can make up for in a heartbeat. But Aston Villa, just, they don't have that. And so when it comes time to pay the piper, if you if the gamble doesn't pay off, if, if you're in the championship, you just don't have the players and they have you by the balls. And so what you do have is going to be devalued. And so you're going to be pay, selling off players for peanuts to try to scrape even um, and, and you're just not going to be able to do it. And so that's why financial fair play is just the most onerous for the kind of this tier of club where Aston Villa is not a small club. No. Uh, but they don't have the players or the revenue currently to do what Spurs are doing and load up on debt to try to make a jump to the next tier. Um, and and, and they, they get a little bit stuck. It really hampers them. Yeah. And it's just – I mean it's it's a fascinating system. I think it's a really – I think – and it, it's I've been doing a lot of thinking and just let's uh, because we don't have that much more time. It's been a long show. Um, I just want to close out. That was our five tiers of clubs. I think there is another tier, which is teams that are currently in the Premier League, but stri like feeling like either they could make a push for the European spots or not. And the problem with that level is, again, it's the same basic structure as the Aston Villa thing. If you go out and you invest in a lot of people like look at um I can't remember which team but look Swansea I think is a team that went out and actually invested in some of these young people and they just have not been rewarded for it. <clears throat> the outcome is basically just the same as Aston Villa, right? Because they if so it, it's actually worse because if they're rele relegated they're still going to have to sell all these players who are yeah, going to be brutally developed like, like devalued, yeah. right? So Yeah. I mean 
it's all about like when when you're at this level, if you want to make a push for European contention, you have to spend. Yeah. Unless yeah, and you... Swansea, Swansea spent a ton on just a loan fee for Renato Sanchez, and it is not fucking working. No, it's not. And I mean, I I got to tell you, I always I just never liked Renato Sanchez. I did not think he was that good a player in the first place, and they clearly did. So bad luck. And that's I mean, that's fundamentally where where FFP is really the most brutal. So just kind of in summation, this is. A fascinating subject, and it's it's important to remember also that, uh, and I wanted to just address, there's one question on Twitter that I got when I wrote my piece, and that when Liz wrote her piece, um, would a, how would FFP uh, uh, affect women's clubs? And uh, I said, and I stand by this, this analysis, that um, FFP affects the club as a whole. So it, it affects both the men's and the women's club. So they can use revenues from the men's club to offset the women's club and vice versa, actually. So if the women's club isn't turning a profit, if it's a net over, you know, year over year net loser, you'll be okay as long as you can uh, offset that if you have even another sport team. So we know, for example, PSG actually has a quite a successful handball franchise. I, I found that out when I was looking at their revenues. The 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 revenues from the handball franchise are going to help the revenues from the soccer club, it, because UEFA basically doesn't care where you're getting the money from, as long as the club is making the money. Yeah, as long right? as you're making money, they just want you to be turning profits. Right. Like so the, it, it, but, yeah. The question it. is for me whether women's clubs who are not affiliated with men's clubs have to abide by FFP, and I think that's a much more interesting question because Evan. There is a specific section in the regs about FFP regarding women's clubs and whether you count and and saying you can count revenues and losses and profits and losses for the team. But because that's included, I wonder whether if there is a standalone women's club, whether they'd be included, because like, what are they supposed to do? Anyways, I think it's very interesting. Um so yeah, uh, that's basically where we are. I'm happy to continue to talk about uh, FFP. I know we're going to have uh, more articles about it. We're going to have more articles about MLS. Next time, we're going to be talking a little bit more about MLS transfer market, the big move uh, over the weekend with uh, Orlando City. So Evan is very excited um, and more. All right. So uh, until then, man, talk to you later. Catch you later. Cash everything around me. Cream it. Yeah. Check this old fly shit out. Word up. Cash Take you on the national joint. Cream, get the here money. We, here we go. Dollar, Check dollar this bill, shit. Yeah. I grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. Staying alive was no job. Had second hands. Moms bounced on old men. So then we moved to Shallon Land. A young dude, you're rocking the go tooth. Low goose, only way I begin to G York was drug loot. And let's start it like this, son. Rolling with this one and that one. Pulling out gats for fun. But it was just a dream for the team. I love it.